0: Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Assalamu alaikum jamiaan wa rahmatullahi wa Everyone, on behalf of the conference organizers, welcome to this panel discussion on Islamic sciences and the most influential scholars. My name is Zain Molaboy, and to make the most of our time together, I'll jump straight into the proceedings. Our panelists today embody the idea of Islamic scholarship. They are two of the most distinguished gentlemen I know, and it is my distinct honor to introduce them to you. Sheikh Jafar Ladakh was a successful businessman before he embarked on the path of full-time community service as a religious leader. He has qualifications from the Hausa in the Holy City of Karbala, as well as from Al-Mahdi Institute in Birmingham, and a Masters in Islamic Law from the Islamic College of London. He has published four books and several papers. He was the resident Alim at the Haidari Islamic Centre and Hujat Stanmore in London. He is the incoming resident alim of Babmul Ilm Center in Leeds and many of our viewers would have benefited from his wisdom and we will be very familiar with his online lectures which are available on YouTube and which are excellent. Assalamu alaikum Sheikh Ladak. Alaikum
1: assalam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.
0: Professor Sayyid Jastajad Rizvi is associate professor of Islamic intellectual history and Islamic studies as well as the director of the Center of Study of Islam at the University of Exeter. He is also an advisor to various government departments in Britain and Europe. With postgraduate degrees from Oxford and Cambridge and several publications to his name, spanning Islamic philosophy, theology, and Quranic exegesis, he is one of the preeminent academics involved in the study of Islam in the Western world today. Professor Rizvi also runs a fascinating blog entitled Hikmat, and I encourage the viewers to engage with that blog. Salaam Alaikum, Professor Rizvi.
2: Salaam Alaikum Zain, and uh... Good evening. Assalamu alaikum to
0: everyone out there. And good morning to you from where I am. If I may begin our discussions with you, Sheikh Ladakh, uh, the ghaiba or occultation, both the lesser and the greater occultation of the 12th Shi'i Imam, Ajlallahu Faraj, uh, presented unique challenges for Islamic scholarship. Please could you share some of your thoughts with us on this?
1: Bismillahir Rahmanir Raheem. Wa Rabbi ala Muhammadin wa alihi al I think we need to qualify the question for our audience. May Allah um, bless them all and grant us the opportunity to learn from one another. What we want to be able to do in this um, discussion with yourself and Sayyid Sajad, Professor Sajjad, is to be able to think about the growth of the Shi'i intellectual journey. And so the question that you pose about what are the challenges that were um, uh, present in the early period after the ghaiba of Imam al-Mahdi alayhi salam what we want to be able to ask ourselves are what were the challenges and how did those scholars navigate those challenges allowed us to be able to form the type of madhab and religion that we have today and then we begin to juxtapose those with the multiple challenges that each era brings along with it. So. From my humble perspective, there were two main challenges that were um, at the time of the earliest period of Reba. The first is the need for the crystallization of a Shi'i corpus, and the second was producing an early imami identity for the community. Now often because of the way in which our majalis are structured, our audience don't really necessarily know the inter-religious and intercultural influences that were present during the initial stage of development of the imami religion and literature and so it's important to uh, reference the uh, canonization of imami literature which occurred mainly in the Buyid period which is some three to four hundred years after the prophet muhammad and that helps us to understand that there are certain scholars who played an essential role in paving the way towards the crystallization of the shi'i classical corpus if we go back a century into the second to third century after Hijra, we will appreciate that there were or that the century was marked by a number of events. There were uh, a number of civil wars, both intellectual as well as physical. There was the political fragmentation of the Turks. Um, There was the rise of Sunni traditionalism. And so the third century was a space for the Shia to actually organize their faith a little bit more systemically. most of the classical Shi'a ahadith compilations were the result of the works that came out of that Buyid period during which the uh, Shi'i intellectual activities were encouraged by the dynasty. And so there are two main issues that come out of this first period is that the classical traditionalist or biographical tasks were to collect the information at the time and to arrange it and to order it such that we can start to make some proto-akhbari schools from the area of Qum. And the second challenge was then a number of exegetal works that were attributed to the imams of Ahlul Bayt that started to reflect later developments. They started to take on a more uh, distinct theological trend or a mystical trend and how to navigate some of those um, traditions that were coming up so this was the first challenge that existed within uh, the, the uh, period of uh, Ghaybah and the second was the need to um, have a formation of an imami identity which in some part was in contradistinction to the mu'taziliya identity that was coming up so many people will know that there is uh, multiple traditions households within Islam at that time there is the Ash'ari school, there is the Mu'tazili school, there is the Imami school of thought. Now, one particular um, Mu'tazili scholar, um, Abu al-Qasim al-Ka'bi al-Balhi, who died in 319 after Hijrah, he was one of the heads of the Mu'tazili school, he, he has a very famous quote where he says that it should be said about the Mu'taziliya that their sect, the chain, goes back towards the Prophet Muhammad ﷺ. And he makes this chain that goes back to Muhammad al hanafiyya the um, adopted son of Imam Ali ibn Abi Talib alayhi salam And so what this did was it placed an, um, a pressure upon the imami school of thought to be able to distinguish itself. If you have two schools of thought grappling with each other, claiming proximity to Ahlul Bayt alayhi some of the nuances can become lost. And Often people don't know which school of thought um, is going to be the one that is actually associated to Ahlul Bayt Ali So there was a need to formalize the Shi'i identity. This arguably fell into the hands of scholars like Sheikh al-Mufid, Sharif al-Multada, Sheikh al-Tursi, and they began to uh, formalize our madhab um, on discourses that were going to be rivaling that of the Mu'attazaliyya on the matter of otherworldly intercession um, for sinners or imamate as being rationally necessary or the idea of the 12 imams are infallible and can perform extraordinary actions or the illegitimacy of certain earlier caliphs. All of this was significant for um, espousing an imami communal identity and when these three scholars seemed to be very much um, in, in proximity with each other, such as when Sharif Murtadha conforms to a tradition passed down to him by Sheikh Al Mufid, and Sheikh tusi doesn't dissent. This gave great weight to the early formalization of the Shi'i identity. So, number one, the crystallization of a Shi'i canon, and number two, the crystallization of an early Shi'i identity. These were the two uh, main challenges in the early uh, period of Reba, in my humble opinion.
0: Thank you very much, Sheikh um, Professor Rizvi, following up from what Sheikh just mentioned, in that historical era, um, could you possibly identify two great thinkers who you think are of significant importance? I hazard a guess that your Twitter hang- handle, I believe, is Mullah Sadra, and I hazard a guess that one of those will possibly be Mullah Sadra?
2: <laughs> yeah, there's no surprises there. Um, and, and also because of the fact that I'm primarily interested in philosophy, I am going to nominate two philosophers. Um, I think the reason why I picked them, and I'll say who they are in a second, um, although you know who one of them is, um, is because uh, what happens in the intermediate period, and especially in the Safavid period, so the uh, 16th and 17th century in particular, is that you get a, a crystallization of an attitude towards knowledge and to the tradition. What is the imami, the shiai tradition, which to a large extent still remains the case today. Um, uh, Although, of course, there are ways in which they're being contested right now. So the crystallization of that tradition happens in that Safavid period. And what happens is that there is a certain reception of these early um, works, uh, compilations of hadith and exegesis that um, uh, Sheikh Jafar was talking about earlier in the third and fourth century in particular, from about 300-400 Hijri. Um, as well as a further refinement of what had become the dominant uh, theological school, which of course is the school uh, ushered in by um, uh, Khwaja Nasiruddin Tusi and his uh, student Alama al-Hilli um, at around uh, the year 1300. So of course uh, that's that's the key kind of uh, landscape of what I'm talking about. The two figures are Mir Damad, Mir Muhammad Baqir al- Damad, Astalavadi, who dies in. 31 and was a very prominent jurist, uh, philosopher, theologian, exegete, occultist of his time. And uh, by the end of his life, he became the Sheikh al-Islam of Isfahan, which was the most significant um, uh, clerical position, um, religious authoritative position in the Stafford Empire. And of course, the second person is Mullah Sadhu shirazi din uh, Muhammad ibn Ibrahim Qawwami uh, shirazi who dies a few years later, 1636, and of course, Mir students. Now, the reason why I picked them, as I said, is about the way in which they reflect and refine the tradition which came before. And the way in which they do that um, is through a pivotal concept, which is known as tahqiq, uh, or a critical reflection upon arguments that have come before. So tahqiq is the idea that one does not uh, merely uh, imitate uh, previous uh, arguments, this notion known as taqlid, but rather one rethinks, refines, modifies, extends, creates anew, critically evaluates the arguments for themselves and shows uh, one's own skill as a scholar in doing this. So this is the idea of tahqiq, which of course did not um originate with with Sadra, but in many ways in the shi tradition they're the two who exemplify them they also alongside this notion of that they had a holistic idea of of knowledge and what the pursuit of knowledge was and of course given the uh the theme uh, linking to the the birth of course of amir al Salam, uh, the point here to mention is that they are two of the significant figures who start to incorporate various sayings of Amir al-Mu'mineen into a wider philosophical and metaphysical vision of reality. So if you want to understand what the nature of reality is, the nature of exegesis, engaging with the Quran, understanding what the hadith of the Imams are, then one brings in some of the important sayings and reflections of Amir al-Mu'mineen into that uh, medium. So whether that is elements from the so-called uh, diwan uh the poetry of emir mu'minin whether it's uh, some of the famous um, sermons from and the short sayings um, from the balagha especially uh, for example the first sermon um, of the nehaj in particular and also uh, some other famous um, statements and sayings which are attributed to them. and one of the things also they do is that they really um, orient the um, the tradition in a way which, as I said, links together philosophy, mysticism, the occult, the understanding of the Shia tradition, uh, by focusing in on one very specific kind of technique for doing that, which is rather interesting, uh, which one finds in Mir Dhammad as well as in Mullah Sada, in Mullah Sada, you find it in his commentary on the Quran, his exegesis on the Quran. And this is the idea that the the the, um, discrete letters found at the beginning of certain uh, surahs of the quran uh, constitute a code for understanding the nature of the quran and also reality itself so what they do is they come up with a formula which links together all these letters of uh these these discrete letters and they come up with this uh, very famous um, phrase which is surat that the path of Ali is truth that we adhere to, that we cleaved to, that we follow. Uh, and so there's a very extensively kind of embedded uh, Shi'i attachment to walaya, which rise, lies at the very core of this wider uh, vision of what metaphysics is, the nature of reality, the concepts that we use to make sense of our world, and course the language that we use to then convey and communicate that and so for those reasons I would I would pick those two um, I of course I could say a lot more about the specific doctrinal positions but I would I would focus perhaps more on this wider method and key that they bring together um, between the two of them
0: thank you professor Riley that was uh, fascinating of course the uh, the theosophy of both those uh, scholars um, and the existentialism that they Expanded is quite different from the Western existentialism. Isn't that correct? Because their focus was God
2: Yeah, so the term existentialism I think is somewhat misleading. Um, it's rather this notion of um, Existence or being as a foundational reality which unites everything right, so it's a certain uh, vision of the unity um, as well as the way in which things um appear and manifest themselves to one another. So modern existentialism is primarily a one in which uh, the Nietzschean idea of uh, the death of God is very much taken. It's about the the struggle of the human condition. Whereas um, this focus on wujud, on uh, being that one finds in Mullah Sad, of course, Mir Damad is a slightly different position because for Mir Damad, it's only God, which is purely um, existence uh, and everything else uh, has a very kind of uh, derivative um, sense of what existence is. Um, It's more the case that everything stems from God, everything is about that connection from God, everything comes from God and is ever moving on the path towards God. And that is the path that we uh, need to be consciously on. And that of course is precisely the path that is then manifest by the wali, by the imam, and. He is the one who then takes us to our destination on that path.
0: Thank you, Professor Rizvi. Uh, Sheikh Ladak, would you mind letting us know two of the most significant scholars in the contemporary era that mean a significant amount to you?
1: Bismillahir Rahmanir rahim I think um, we might want to proceed this question by asking ourselves what is it that the Hawza Almiyya wants to contribute? And achieve and then we are able to see um, the vision of these contemporary minds in accordance with that goal. So if we were to say for example that the Hawza al is primarily there to provide muballigheen or resident ulama then of course we would judge scholarship coming out of it in accordance with those aims. If, however, we were to state that the goal of the Hosa al was to contribute to the um, human and uh, global endeavours and the emerging trends that exist around the world, then again, we need to uh, readjust our understanding of what we mean by um, the, the most significant contemporary thinkers. That aside, um, it would also be difficult to just name two because we, we then end up thinking about isolating um, these individuals and rather they are actually part of a wider trend. So there are a number of Mujaddideen and renewers that uh, are are either um, those who are present, or who have recently passed away. We, we could probably start with people like um, His Eminence, Shaheed Muhammad Baqir al-Sadr, um, Sayyid Muhammad Hussein fadlallah um if we go into some contemporary scholars, we would mention, for example, Sayyid Kamal al-Haydari, Haydar uh, Ayatollah Ibrahim Jannati. But what I want to be able to do is kind of just divide two trends. So if we go to the traditional fithi trend, we can identify one personality. And then from my own area of interest, which would be Quranic studies, I would like to then identify a a, a second individual who I feel has um, provided us with a great shift in in approach. So in the traditional fiqhi um, model, uh, the person I would uh, highlight is uh, a scholar who passed away very recently, um, Ayatollah uh, Yusuf Sani'i. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala bless him for his work. Uh, Sheikh Sani'i is well known for institutionalizing a uh, new method of ijtihad and actually as much as people come to think of his name being associated with very radical ideas um, actually he is very much vested within a a mainstream usuli framework however his his role of um, evolving the thinking of Um, the system of ijtihad was that it was rooted in the idea of moral rationalism and our understanding of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala not being able to do any injustice to anything, any person, and as an outcome of that, how we then begin to understand um, some of the the laws that are within that. Ayatullah Sani'i actually made a jump in evolving the scope of rulings um, and he helped in the continuity of fiqh and actually um, as much as his ideas were very very provocative his ideas were within the scope that existed today and the reason why i think that's important is that it shows that there's an expansion in the thinking that is existing within um, an existing framework the second person i would recommend to our um, dear audience to be able to look into is a scholar again who passed away maybe um, a decade ago uh, by the name of um, Ayatollah uh, Muhammad Sadiqi Tahrani. May Allah bless him as well. Ayatollah Sadiqi Tahrani was a, uh, an eminent student of Sayyid Tabataba'i. So we know Allama Tabataba'i was the author of the Tafsir Al Mizan. And with that methodology that was uh, enshrined by Sayyid Tabatabai, the Tafsir of the Qur'an by the Qur'an, uh, Ayatollah Sadiqi Tahrani took that methodology and maybe evolved it even a step further and ended up writing a very large commentary called Tafsir Al-Furqan. And the reason why I pick him is that we have an, a number of scholars who in the recent or in this last decade have taken Qur'anic studies forward a great deal. For example, we have um, Ayatullah said, Muhammad Taqi Al-Mudarasi we have uh, Ayatullah Hadi Ma'rifat but the reason why I choose Sadiqi Tahrani was his insistence on being Quraniyun or being amongst those who will establish the grounding of all matters through the Qur'an and everything has to then be judged through that lens what I see as part of the evolution of the times in which we're living in is that this idea of having a Qur'anic lens, and everything else is judged by that, becoming more and more prominent, becoming more and more validated as well. Um, And I think that this is providing us with a great jump, a big leap in the methodology of our school of thought. Um, And I feel that if uh, our audience acquaint themselves with these sorts of scholars, they will become very appreciative of a new way of approaching the religion of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala.
0: Asant, thank you very much, Shekhna. Uh Professor Rizvi and Sheikhna. we have just about seven minutes left, so if we could keep the next few answers brief, but still um, profound as you have been so far, that would be much appreciated. Uh, Professor Rizvi, keeping with the uh, contemporary era, uh, what do you think are really the key exigencies of our time, for instance, technology in the development of religious scholarship?
2: a question of the scholarship it's also what i would consider the um uh, i guess the uh, the demands and the challenges that the house in particular faces and what in a sense do uh, do people uh, want from it um there are two things or rather three things which i, I think are general challenges which are, are very problematic and then the question is how do we then uh deal with that um the first one of course is uh what nowadays is known as the Anthropocene, the idea that humans have fundamentally not just messed up their own lives, uh, but have actually messed up the cosmos, um, the world in which we're living. And we hence um, are living in a a climate emergency and we have to deal with that sort of um, issue. We have to change the way in which we live and behave within society. That is a very um, immediate problem that we face. The second one is what is sometimes known as epistemicide and the fact that uh, different modes of understanding the world, um, inquiring into knowledge and the way in which we grasp the world and understand ourselves, have been obliterated, have been flattened out, have been destroyed by what has become a dominant um, mode of doing that, uh, which arises out of Western colonialist modernity. And so, in a sense, we need to think about how it is that we can recover elements of our traditions which are broadly gone uh, but also how it is that we can then uh, bring our traditions into conversation with other traditions globally to in a sense push back against the the dominance of uh, as i said a western um, colonialist uh, modernity and the third one i guess which is related to that is one about ethical values uh, norms and ideas about how we should live Um, which again are being constantly and um, uh, interrogated in the ways in which it's extremely important for the Hausa, for those who are uh, scholars, then to have the right sort of training to deal with that and the other two challenges. Um, That is clearly, I think, a a big task, a big ask in many ways uh, to do, Um, but the one first step in that would be a recognition that these are challenges, that these are problems that need to be uh, found, uh, solutions to, or at least attempts to to relate to. And also alongside that, a recognition that the traditional conception of the Hausa as something which um, produces fairly uh, closeted um, scholars of legal traditions and legal comportment uh, is just insufficient. We need to go far beyond that. It's not just about adding sciences to the mix but rather really thinking about what the pursuit of knowledge is and how does knowledge inform the way in which we live our lives in the way in which we want to form uh, our own selves and communicate that to others
0: thank you very much um, we have four minutes left so i'll post this question to both of you probably starting with um with shake ladek if you don't mind and if you could keep the answers uh, two minutes that'd be excellent um, and traditional scholarship is uh, traditionally well it's currently viewed to be unidirectional so flowing for example from the marjaya to the layperson one way um, how do you see the current use of technology or other means changing that and having a more bi-di- bidirectional relationship between the lay people and the marjaya or scholarship sheikh
1: I think that model is um, already shifting um, on the ground. So, for example, there is some work being done by Dr. Ali Reza Bajani uh, and others coming out of um, uh, Oxford that looks at the um, uh, the other roles of or, or those who are, might be sit between um, the the grassroots and and the maraja, and finding that actually one of the most dominating forces is actually the resident adama. Aside from that. I think we we need to reconfigure the way in which we imagine this religion and I completely concur with Professor Rizvi's comments about the Anthropocene and trying to realign our thinking. I think we are still in such a dogmatic um, nationalist, maybe at best internationalist type of vision of um, our faith and we're still in some ways even fighting the Dar al-Islam, Dar al-Sulh, Dar al-Kufr motif. So I think if we begin to think about the role of the maraji I would like to see that the mirage, um are no longer clamoured in one or two particular locations, but rather need to be based across the world and developing or being party to the development of more local schools of thought around the world. In regards to the... Um, The technology side of it i think we're obviously on the cusp of artificial intelligence and i think when it comes to the outdated um ways of uh, interacting with our marajas such as through websites that take us a month to get responses and sometimes diverse responses i think there is an urgent need to update our technology um, and that should be based around artificial intelligence so i think these are certain things that our audiences need to be considering now
0: Thank you, Sheik. Professor Rizvi, final thoughts, one minute.
1: Yeah, I, I, I agree
2: with a lot of that. I'd say two things. One is communication, how communication is articulated uh, between uh, communities and between the Maraja and centers of authority uh, and how that has to be much more uh, collaborative and, and joint up. Um, and secondly, an understanding that, um, you know, relationships are about mutual flourishing. Uh, they're not just about Uh, command and control or rather mere um, mere sort of imitation and following but rather you know we're all together as ahle Ahle al-walaya to work together for certain common aims to help our flourishing and our path back to god to the one with the imam Uh, and that's something which has to be recognized everyone has a role expertise has a role and has to be recognized as such
0: Ahsanth, Sheikh Lada, Professor Rizvi, thank you so much for your time and for sharing your wisdom with us today. It has been a real pleasure spending this half hour with you. Uh, thank you also to Sir Jawad Khazwini and all those working hard behind the scenes to make this conference a success. And thank you especially to the audience for your participation. I leave you with this final thought. Uh, in a tradition attributed to Imam Jafar as-Sadiq al salam, the Imam says that one of the roles of the scholars or ulama is salvific, to protect the people. In reciprocity, please join me in praying for the well-being and health of all those scholars who are pursuing truth and knowledge around the world. Walaikum salam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.